Apostle John begins his third his first epistle in a state of almost breathless wonder as he ponders the reality of God's adopting love. We read these words. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. We are not just called the children of God. That is our experiential reality. The doctrine of adoption is especially staggering when we consider the kind of people that God receives into his family. They aren't the kind of folks that we might choose to bring into our own family. They originally are the nobodies of the world. Jesus, in fact, addresses some of them in the parable that we're going to consider this morning. They are society's casts off here in this parable, tax collectors and scandalous sinners. This is the kind of people that God commonly calls into his family. Those whom Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians with these words. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. This morning, we are introduced to the central figure in this marvelous drama of redemption, referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. We've considered already the lost son. In three sermons, we considered, first of all, his determinative decision, that it rose from his wandering heart, and it led to estrangement from his father. Then we looked at his licentious Lifestyle. We considered his degenerate behavior and his destitute condition. And then we looked last week or last time at his revolutionary repentance. That he comes to his senses. He resolves to leave his sin and return home confessing his sin. And then he finally gets up from the far country and he returns to his father. And so the prodigal's folly, his subsequent repentance, and his return home sets the stage for the entrance of the chief actor in this wonderful drama of God's redeeming grace. He is the chief actor, I say, because he pictures our redeeming God. We come now in our meditation on this precious parable, having considered the lost son, secondly, to consider the waiting father. If you're not already there by way of anticipation, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 
15. I'll begin reading at verse 11 and down through verse 24. And he that is Jesus said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to be merry. Well, this morning, as we come to consider the waiting father, let us notice three things, and then we'll come to some concluding observations. Jesus sketches for us in this waiting father a touching picture of God's love and forgiveness. Indeed, that was his whole purpose, presenting the parable of the lost sheep and then the lost coin, and now the lost son. Behold God's amazing grace, his astonishing love and mercy toward repentant prodigals. In fact, this grace was evident in the father even before the prodigal cut out and left home. Notice, first of all, he graciously dismissed the departing prodigal. Look back at verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. Now, as we consider this point, notice, first of all, that he provided for his 
prodigal son's material needs. His father didn't refuse, but rather provided his wayward son his portion of the family inheritance. Now we must understand that this father did not finance his son's prodigality. He didn't say, here, go have a good time with your money. Nobody did this as a test to remind his son where true and lasting riches are to be found. Not out there, but here. And this parting kindness testified to this wayward son that he had a gracious father waiting for him back at home. This earlier kindness after the prodigal hit bottom in his sin eventually drew him home with the hope of forgiveness and reconciliation with his father. Father didn't slam the door in his face and say, get out of here and I don't want to ever see your face again. He gave him the share of his inheritance and probably dismissed him with a frown and a tear. Secondly, he permitted him freedom to leave home. We learned that it was the evil heart of this boy and not any failure in his father that caused him to become disaffected by his godly influence, a discontent with his righteous rules. Now, this was the very best of fathers because he pictures God. No human father is perfect, but this father was as good as they get. Nothing in his father would have driven him as if he is a wise son. It would have driven him out the doors. Now, his home, his home was filled with affection This father allowed room for his sons to exercise their legitimate desire for freedom, giving them liberty to test their maturing judgment. It was not, therefore, a home under a tyrannical dictator, not a smothering father. But a time came when the heart of this younger son no longer felt comfortable in his father's house. Perhaps he gave his father the common excuse that he just needed room to stand on his own two feet, that he needed to make a life for himself out in the world. Dad, isn't that what you did? And you built all this up? Let me go. I want to do the same. Well, his father allowed him to go, allowed him to go because he was of age, Again, as we noted before, there was no flaring anger on his father's part. We read of no rebuke given. And this may appear to us out of character for such a righteous and conscientious father to let his son go without a word. We don't know all that transpired. Letting him go, especially when he could see the likely outcome of his disaffected son's unwise decision. He'd been around the barn a few times. He knew what was out there. This father's granting permission for his son to leave home was, I suggest, as wise as it would have been painful knowing what awaited his son. 
Remember Mr. Trench's astute observation. He writes, It would have little profited to retain him at home, who had already in heart become strange to that home. Such is the dealing of God. He has constituted man a being with a will, and when his service no longer appears a perfect freedom, and man promises himself liberty elsewhere, he is allowed to make the trial and to discover that in departing from him, he falls under the horrible bondage of his own lusts and of the world and under the tyranny of the devil. And now the younger son is Lord of himself, that heritage of woe. So he graciously dismissed the departing prodigal. Notice, secondly, he hopefully anticipated the returning penitent. He hoped to receive his son back changed. Verse 20. And while he was, that is, the prodigal, still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him, and kissed him. I dare say that this son probably didn't anticipate this kind of homecoming. Brethren, we form a distorted picture of God if we see him as devoid of emotion. Remember whom this father is to picture. This isn't the picture that God paints of himself in the scriptures. Jesus teaches in the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin that God rejoices in the repentance of lost sinners. We might even say that God exhibits a holy eagerness in reclaiming the wayward. A forgiving disposition burns with holy intensity in the bosom of God. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He says this himself. And he states he rather desires that the wicked would turn from their wickedness in repentance so that he might show them mercy. Something is fundamentally wrong with our conception of God if we think that he delights in punishing sinners. Righteous and just he surely is. The soul that sins shall surely die. This is a cosmic law. God said it. The wages of sin is what? It's death. God must punish sin or he would not be holy and just and good. His righteous government demands that sin be punished. In fact, God commanded parents under the old covenant to inflict capital punishment upon such older, stubbornly rebellious children like this prodigal if they continued to live in rebellion under their parents' roof. This godly human father held out hope that his former mercies would one day draw his wayward son from the paths of sin to seek his forgiveness and reconciliation. 
And I think it is right for us to imagine that this father waited during those dark and distressing years, seemingly hopeless years, yearning for the return of the one who had so grievously offended his goodness and trampled his love. Could it have been in the evening as the sun's going down and his hope is rising within his heart that he looks away from the house out on the fields and on the roads that come to the door? Oh, would it be this day that my son will return to me? Many are the evidences of his father's mercy in response to his returning son that picture God's response to penitent prodigals. I borrow Matthew Henry's description of the wonderful facets of this father's staggering mercy. Note with me five of them. First of all, he looked for his son with eyes of mercy. Verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Could it be that one whose sandals are raising dust in the distance is the one that I've been pleading for God to return? The one for whom my pillow has been wetted night after night. This prodigal's father never gave up hope for his wayward boy to return home. Day after day, over many months or years, the prodigal son was away. The father's eyes scanned the horizon, yearning for his son's return in penitence. Why? So he could shower him with forgiving mercy. The son who entered this father's view was very different than the one had, which he had watched leave. When he left, he was healthy. He was neatly dressed. Now he returns. His clothes are tattered. His, his feet are bare and swollen. His body emaciated. His health wasted. He left proud, but he returns penitent. His startling appearance that met his father's eyes only hinted at the desperate condition of his soul. It told an ugly story of a rebellious and profligate life. This, this is the son who returned. It was for this very son, remember, the son who had abandoned home, who had plunged himself into a life of sin, who had degraded himself, who had sullied the family's name, for whom this father longingly and lovingly looked and continually prayed and wept. This was the returning one. Secondly, he loved his son with a heart of mercy. Walking down the road, toward the waiting father, perhaps shuffling, nervously halting at times with doubt, was the son who broke his heart. Yet what thrill, what compassion must have risen in this hopeful father's heart? This father's compassion teaches us 
that the miserable condition of the sinner is no hindrance to divine love. Let's face it, each one of us is loved in spite of ourselves, not because of who we are and what we've done. This young man had broken the family bond, severed the relationship between father and son. He had wasted his inheritance. He had ruined his life through riotous living. This did not put him outside the reach of his father's mercy. What is love but the heart of mercy and mercy but the extension of love? of kindness shown to the miserable. Now, brethren, if we were to reckon our just deserts, we would see that by our sin and our rebellion, we have forfeited all claims upon God's kindness. We deserve to be cast into outer darkness and punished for all eternity in the lake of fire. You see, if we were to be rescued and restored, God must reach out. He must extend mercy to us. And this he does for all penitent sinners who come to him through Jesus Christ. You see, he showed no mercy to our sinless Savior that he might show abounding mercy to us in him. Thirdly, he approached his son on feet of mercy. Though the young penitent's returned, return home was determined, it may have been slowed by shame and fear, shame for his sin and fear that he would at last face rejection. Yet when his home comes into sight, he can't believe his eyes. He rubs his eyes. Who is that? This walking toward me. He's picking up his pace. He's running. How sweet are the feet of divine mercy. His father runs on the feet of joy and hope toward his halting son. Little could this penitent boy know at that moment that his father was more anxious to show him mercy than he was to receive it. So he doesn't wait for his son. He runs out to him. Indeed, here is a picture of God's mercy toward us. Psalm 86 and verse 5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. And this boy had come calling. Unknown to the boy, it was God's mercy that brought him to his senses in the far country and moved his feet in the direction of home. Notice, fourthly, he embraced his son with arms of mercy. What a touching display of mercy that we behold here. This young man's father literally fell on his neck he grabbed his son, probably weak in the knees over joy, holds him dear to his bosom. Oh. 
Though his son was guilty of serious sins, though he was dirty and he reeked with the smell of the pigsty, though he deserved to be beaten, his father throws his arms around him and draws him to his throbbing bosom. What seemed too good to be true to the son seemed too good to be true to the father. He's come home. And so he's received. Brother, no penitent sinner is too foul that God will not receive him with open arms. Finally, he showered his son with kisses of mercy. And he kissed him. Now, you wouldn't know it in the English translation, but it translates a verb tense in the original that teaches that his father kissed him repeatedly. This kissing was a display both of his pent-up affection as well as a sign of reconciliation. You see, by his kisses, he intended to convey to his son his full and affectionate forgiveness. And notice that upon his lips is not a single word of reproof. God had reproved him, and he could see that. Instead, he was showered with kisses of acceptance and reconciliation. Such kisses upon a penitent would have drawn out his love that was all but extinguished, you remember, when he left home with his jaw set for the far country. He would have melted this son's heart. He would have reciprocated the love of his father for him. They probably would have wept together till there were no more tears. Behold the love of God. Indeed, we love him because what? He first loved us. So the waiting father graciously dismissed the departing prodigal. He hopefully anticipated the returning penitent. And notice thirdly, he joyfully received the penitent prodigal. Notice three things. First of all, he quietly heard his son's confession. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now notice that the father wasn't the one who uttered the first word here. It was the son. And then he listened with his heart as well as with his ears. He heard the language of a broken heart. Indeed, his boy's demeanor is noticeably different from that of his departure. Then he was demanding and hard-hearted, filled with cockiness and self-assurance. And now he's humbled and he's broken over his sin. And notice also when the father does speak, his son either doesn't get a chance to request that he be received as a servant, or else his father refuses to hear anything from him and he 
installs him as a full-fledged member once again of the family. This father's actions seem to say, just hold it a minute, son. I will hear no more talk about your unworthiness. Most gladly do I receive you. And though you are not worthy to be called a son, I welcome you with open arms into this household as a returned son. You who are dead have now come back to life. You who are in the far country have come home to your father. You see, his father was teaching him, even as degraded as he had become, that his grace was greater than all of his son's sin. Thirdly, he publicly displayed his acceptance of his repentant son. Verse 22, But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. You see, this forgiving father wasted no time in restoring his returning son to the full privileges of sonship. And he did so in ways that plainly spoke of the son's honored place being restored in the home. You see, this father didn't just call for the closest available robe. He demanded that the best robe be placed upon his son. Take off the tattered rags, put on this robe that pictured his father's... We think of Joseph in his many-colored robe he received from his father Jacob. This is the picture. This robe indicated restoration to his father's favor. And because the son probably felt unworthy even to put it on himself, the father had the slaves put it on him. The slaves now are serving him. A fine ring was placed on his finger. Maybe the family signet ring that bore the family stamp. He now has authority to do business in the family name. Upon his bare feet were placed a pair of fine shoes. We don't think much about shoes. We have many in our closets. Wasn't so in those days. Expensive shoes were very uncommon, but these bare feet were now replaced upon them the very best shoes. You see, expensive shoes and the ring marked him out as a free man. Slaves were barefooted. They wore no expensive jewelry if they wore any jewelry at all. And the fattening calf that is in the stall was slaughtered for a feast of celebration. This is really, as it were, the peace de resistance of his father's acceptance of his son. He says, we're going to have a party. You see, all of these tokens indicated that this repentant son belonged to his father. That his father accepted him as his own, that he was fully restored that he was in his father's heart as his beloved son. And notice the third and final expression of his father's rejoicing. He joyfully celebrated his son's repentance. Verse 23, And let us eat and be merry, for this son of mine was dead 
and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. This father can't contain his joy. He wants to share it with everyone. So he broadcasted this happy report to his entire household and maybe even outward to his neighbors around him. So he throws this lavish party for his returning son. He invites all to come and to celebrate with him. And so he kills the fattened calf. Such calves were kept for festive occasions. And what occasion called for more festivity than the return of his lost son? And I have wondered, and perhaps you have too, had this father kept a calf fattening in the stall in hopes that he would kill it and celebrate upon the return of his son? Very likely, to my mind. Like the shepherd who found the lost sheep and the woman the lost coin, the father who found the lost son calls his neighbors to join with him in celebration. And again, we see that this father, whom, by whom Jesus pictures our father in heaven, rejoices over a repenting sinner and all heaven with him. The Apostle Paul calls the God of the Bible the Father of mercies. He delights to embrace penitent sinners in the arms of reconciling love. You see, this is God's way. This was his way with the penitent Jews who were exiled to Babylon for their sin. And when they had been gone 70 years and they were brought to repentance, God returns them home. And seeing that his chastening had brought them to repentance, he informs them out of his delight that he has restored them to his favor. Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Anticipating that return home, the prophet writes, The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. This is our God. This is his attitude toward penitent sinners. Whenever God brings a repentant sinner home, he rejoices over him. He pardons his sin for Jesus' sake. He adopts him or her as his beloved child. He makes them heirs of all of his possessions in glory in Christ Jesus. This is the glorious truth that's taught in this parable. So let us consider the final moments, some concluding observations. First of all, beloved, 
Beloved of God, ponder your heavenly Father's merciful dealing with you. Notice three points. First of all, ponder his effectual grace in calling you as a helpless sinner. Or you put the word hopeless sinner or hapless sinner there. You see, you came to your senses and you returned to God because he called you by his irresistible grace. That's what the Bible teaches. John 6 and verse 44, no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. This Father, our Father in heaven, drew us to his Son. Now, brethren, this reminds us that God is not sitting in heaven, wringing his almighty hands, hoping that sinners will come to Jesus in repentance. Instead, he powerfully overcomes our resistance. He makes us cheerfully willing in the day of his power to come to him. We wouldn't do anything else but to come to him when he works in our hearts by almighty irresistible grace. This he does by regenerating us. That is giving us, like he did the prodigal, new life from the dead. And therefore, he grants us the gifts of faith in Jesus and repentance from sin. Secondly, ponder your duty to live a holy life before him as a repentant sinner. We can only imagine the kind of life this young man lived after he came back home. He was a changed man. He'd been brought from death to life. He was lost, now he's been found. He was in the far country, now he's home. He was frolicking with sinners, now he's with his father. God does not save us so that we may continue living in sin. That son didn't come home and say, yeah, dad, I had a good time. I you know, suffered a few skin knees along the way, but no. He comes home brokenhearted. See, Jesus saves us from our sin, not in our sin. So the prodigal teaches, he returned from the far country to serve his father in holiness. Peter writes, 1 Peter 4 and verse 3, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. These things are behind you. You had plenty of time to do them then, but now you have a new life. Old things have passed away. New things have come. You've returned to God. Thirdly, ponder God's rich blessings that belong to you as a redeemed sinner. Because God loves you, his mercy is rich and it makes you rich. Consider his rich blessings to you. You are regenerated from deadness in sin to live a life of holiness. You are pardoned from the guilt of sin and you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You're reconciled to God and now you are at peace with him. You are God's adopted child. You're a citizen of his kingdom. You're bound for glory beyond the skies in in his heaven. And there you'll be delivered from pain and and from tears, from death, from the very presence of sin. 
You'll be beyond the reach of the curse to inherit unfading glory and happiness with God forever. Peter or Paul suggests these things. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, the ones he says earlier were dead in trespasses and sins. We live to fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And notice what Paul says here. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show all the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We will be trophies of his grace for all eternity. Oh, if you're without Christ today, may God speak to you and give you a desire to inherit these blessed, unfading, eternal realities in Christ Jesus. Secondly, I've spoken to the beloved of God. Now I speak to prodigals. Observe, observe, dear prodigal, your desperate need of deliverance from your sin. To one degree or another, in your heart or with your hands, you're like this boy in the far country. You need Christ. You need to be brought to your senses and brought back to God. You've been running from him as fast as the feet of your supposed freedom and lust will take you. First of all, see your folly and final damnation for living in rebellion against God. Oh, may God find you out before you run into the very jaws of eternal death. You are dead in trespasses and sins. Notice what Paul says in Romans 6 and verse 21. Think about your life. Take stock. Come to your senses. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? You're ashamed of those things. Can you glory in them today? If you're a true Christian, you say, I want no part of that past life. I'm done with that because God's not done with me. He's forming and fashioning me into the image of his holy son. Notice what Paul says, for the outcome of those things is death. Secondly, here, return to the Lord who delights to pardon and restore penitent sinners. Verse 23 of Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death. Ah, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're dead, you want to be alive, you need to be made alive in Christ Jesus. Right now you're a walking dead man. You need eternal life. You need to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ so that you'll be saved. You need to be regenerated, given a new heart, eyes open to see the kingdom of God, a heart of stone taken out, replaced with a heart of flesh. Only God can do those things. So plead with him to give you a new heart and give you a new destiny. God extends his hand of mercy to you. He bids you to come to him. 
His grace is greater than all of your sin. He receives all truly penitent sinners. Will you die in your sin? You see, it really doesn't matter in the final analysis how wicked you are or have been. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. If you turn from your sin to Jesus, God will sweep you up into his arms of pardoning mercy. He takes no pleasure in your death and damnation, but he earnestly calls to you, turn from your sin, turn to him, turn today, turn and live. Let's pray. Lord Father, the history of the prodigal is the history of each one of us if we have but eyes to see and are honest with ourselves and with you. And Lord, if we're here and we're saved, it's because of your grace toward us. Indeed, you enabled us to come to our senses and to come to Christ, to return from the far country, to be embraced by a welcoming Heavenly Father. So Lord, we pray for any here that are outside of Christ who may doubt whether they're Christians or not. Oh, that you would remove your arm from your bosom and you would sweep them into your arms. You would grant them the gifts of faith and repentance that today would be for them the day of salvation. And for those of us who are pardoning prodigals, pardon prodigals, we pray that we would remember the pit from which we were digged. And now that you placed our feet upon the rock that is higher than we are, we pray that you'd give us grace to continue to run to you through Jesus Christ. Make us more and more into the image of him who died for us, was buried for us, raised for us, seated at your right hand for us, the one who gives us his Holy Spirit and enables us to run in the way of your commandments. Oh Lord, make, make, Lord, make the Lord Jesus all the more precious to us. Make your love for us as our heavenly Father. So sweet to our souls. Oh Spirit of God, have your gracious way with each one of us according to our several needs, and we'll give you the thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.